Good morning, everybody. Today, I wanted to start out with po by posing a question. And the question we'll look at as we go along here in the study. The question is, is the gospel worth fighting for? Is the gospel worth fighting for? And we're going to continue our study in 1 Timothy, and we'll start looking at uh, Timothy chapter 1 and starting in verse 18. Timothy 1, starting in verse 18. This is what it says. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Today is Father's Day, so I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads here today. And I want to look at, um, spend a little bit of time looking at the relationship between fathers and their children. And one of the best ways that a father and a son or a child can have um, with, their, with their children is developing, or is having something to do, is doing something they have in common. Doing something they have in common. And by doing something they both enjoy, they develop a special bond, a special deep bond by doing these things in common. And, um, you know, everybody does, something, does things differently. Some people enjoy fishing. And they might enjoy getting up early in the morning, um, going out to the lake, setting their boat out there. And then their father teaches their son or their daughter how to fish, teaches them how to bait their first hook, how to cast out the line, and how to um, sit there and wait and wait and wait <laughs> until they catch the first fish. And then they share that, that um, the moment of, you know, um, of success by catching a fish, and then they go and grill it together. And some other people, some other fathers, like to uh, work on cars. And ever since they were very young, they, they, they saw their father working on cars and doing the mechanics. And, then, and because of his, their father's interest, they developed an interest themselves. And they started to um, do, it, do it as a hobby, work, work on cars and um, maybe rebuilding an engine or repainting the car, um, tearing it apart and uh, working on different parts of the car, going to car shows and... Um, and looking at old cars and just enjoying that special time where they both have something in common. Other people might just enjoy something simple like throwing a baseball around with their son and teaching him how to catch, teaching him how to throw. Um, and then as it goes on, they might be interested in baseball and they join Little League and the father goes to the game and watches them um, go, through the, go through all of that and uh, cheers them on. And so they all, all of these share a common interest. No, that's not, that's not for later, Jake. But we'll, we'll come to that later. <laughs> um, and uh, I'll, I'll let you know when that comes up, Jake. But, but one of the things uh, is that they, they share a deep, special bond. Um, and one of the, but one of the best things that a father can have in common with their children is, a, is their spiritual life, interest in their spiritual life. And it's not to say that those other things are wrong, but the deepest bond is, is something that's it's going to be a stronger bond than any other activity that you do. And fathers, you can have a profound impact on your child's life by being interested in their spiritual life and by being a spiritual example to them, too. How often do you spend time investing in their spiritual growth? Are you someone they can run to for godly advice? 
and spiritual direction for their lives? Are you able to talk about the Word of God together? Do you share with each other struggles and victories? One of the most significant things a father can do is train them in the Word of God. Older men, you're also spiritual examples to the younger believers here. You can also be a a father to somebody in a sense. You may not be their biological father, but you can adopt a younger believer as a son. Younger men can learn from your godly example and demonstration of Christ-likeness. Are you someone who who other believers look up to? I'm I'm really glad that in our introduction to the letter, um, Sam mentioned and talked about the relationship that Paul and Timothy had. And we looked at the father-son relationship that they had. And it's been fascinating to study their relationship. I never knew all these things about Timothy and Paul before this. But Paul writes to Timothy in one of his letters quite a lot, actually. Paul viewed Timothy as one of his own children, a spiritual child. And Paul and Timothy shared a common interest. The common interest was their faith in Christ Jesus. And the two of them were faithful men who labored together in the gospel. Because of Timothy's close connection with Paul, Timothy had a familiar resemblance to Paul, to the character of Paul. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, um, and when he writes to the Corinthians, he even refers to them as beloved children. He says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul is saying that to the Corinthians, imitate me in spiritual things. Imitate um, the godliness that you see, just like you would your earthly father, imitate me. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that he also sends Timothy to them, and he refers to them to Timothy again as a son in the Lord. And Timothy's character is a reflection of his father, Paul. Timothy would remind them of Paul and the things that he would say, the things that he would do, and the things he would preach as well. And later on in Corinthians, Paul again emphasizes, says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Paul is a living example to others, a living example for other believers to follow. And Timothy has learned from Paul's example, and he urges the Corinthians to do the same thing. Paul is imitating Christ's life by living a sacrificial life, by living a life not for himself, but for the gospel, to preach the gospel. And ultimately, we are also called to imitate Christ. Our lives should be a reflection of who Jesus is. And we should all bear the family resemblance of Christ in our lives, too. And many years ago, I worked at a store, and I worked with a, alongside of a Christian friend. And it was um, surprising, just being around him for any short amount of time um, would really remind me of Christ. His character would really remind me of Christ. And his speech was pure. It was um, the things he loved to talk about were the Lord. And, uh, you know, it just... Even at work, he would love to talk about that. At times, I felt like I was working like, right, right alongside Jesus. And um, if you ever do that, it's, kind of, it's actually very convicting. Um, 
And being around someone that reminds you of Jesus shows you your own sin. Um, and some of the off-color jokes I would tell other people at work or um, you know, share with other people, I wouldn't dare say around him because I felt it didn't feel right. And, and, that, and, and he, he uh, pr- pr- prompted a change in me or to um, his character was, a, was an example to me through that. And it showed me in my own corrupt thinking and my own corrupt thoughts and, and speech as well and showed my own sinfulness. Um, he actually showed me how unlike Christ I was. <clears throat> but spending time with someone who is a reflection of Christ will cause you to want, want to be more like them. And this friend was a godly example of someone to imitate just as Christ, just as he was imitating Christ in his life. And you see, a father is a good example to his children. And children are always watching your example, whether it's a good example or not. Let me give you an example of this. I have a son who's almost two years old. His name is Justin. Jake, you can show the picture. He says, now kids, now kids these days, they, they, they copy everything you do. And they soak in everything. And they, they always seem to be in this learn mode. And they, um, uh, the things that you say, the things that you do, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of um, who they see in you, whether it's good or bad. They copy it. Do they notice how you react to other people? Yes, they do. Do they listen to the things that we talk about? Yeah, and they'll repeat it too. They notice and copy even the little things you do, just like holding a cell phone and crossing your legs. The point I want to make is that Timothy followed Paul's good example. He followed the good example of Paul. And Timothy resembled his father, Paul. In Philippians 2.19-24, it says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. As a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. One way to describe Timothy would be to use the expression, like father, like son. Timothy and Paul were like-minded, and Paul could rely on Timothy to go and accomplish a work at a church. He could send him out and not have to worry about him. He would be a representative of what Paul would be like if he was there. And they shared a common interest. They shared a common work, sharing the gospel in other churches. And I mention all of this to show the tenderness of the relationship that Paul had with Timothy. In our passage, Paul sets out by re-emphasizes in his charge to Timothy, he says, son Timothy. And Paul shows a tenderness to the man that he's labored with in the gospel for so many years. He isn't just barking out orders to Timothy, but he knows the seriousness of this. He knows what it's like to go through this because he's gone through it himself. He's been through the ditches. He's been through being in prison, being in chains, being shipwrecked, being kicked out of cities because of rejection of the gospel. He knows what it's like to face the opposition. And he's gone through worse things than Timothy has so far. But so Paul is, Tim- Paul is encouraging Timothy. that Even though it's difficult, he's speaking from experience. And he's, going th- he's gone through it all. In our verse 18, it says, in Timothy, it says, wage the good warfare. 
the main thing they have in common was that they were in the same battle together. They were in the same war. Now let's, look, let's take a look at what, the war, this, what this war is, what the war they're fighting in. First of all, in verse 18, Paul summarizes the statements he made in the beginning of the chapter. There's a brief review. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. The charge goes back to verse 3 in, the, um, in this chapter. Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And we looked at this. Some of them were teaching different doctrine. They were teaching another doctrine other than the gospel. Some were teaching about fables and endless genealogies instead of the truth. And they were causing disputes. They were causing, um, they, they weren't producing godly edification, but it was producing ungodliness. And the more the, um, their, 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 their preaching was to no profit. There was no value to that. And they were more consumed about what they, um, about teaching the law um, and being teachers of the law. They wanted to put Christians back under the law and throughout grace. But we know this, that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. He paid for our sins and there is nothing that we can do to save us. To earn our salvation, we are saved by trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work that he has already accomplished on the cross. That is why Timothy tells him to go and tell these teachers, these false teachers, to be silent. To urge them and, and uh, charge them that they don't teach any other doctrine other than the true doctrine. Although Paul speaks to Timothy as a father, he also speaks to him as apostle of Jesus Christ. He speaks to him as apostle by the commandment of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a tremendous weight to Paul's statements he's saying. Timothy had the confidence that the things that Paul was saying to him was directly from an apostle of the Lord. And ultimately, the, the things that Paul commanded came from the Lord, not from Timothy, from Paul himself. Additionally, Paul was reminded of his calling to the service of the Lord in verse 18. So in verse 18 of Timothy, it says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, those prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Timothy was commanded to do a very important task. On top of that, there are specific prophecies that were made about Timothy. There was, there was a man in the church who had the gift of prophecy and prophesied about Timothy and in his ministry. And, there is, um, and this is also mentioned again in, um, later on in this book, in uh, chapter 4 of Timothy, verse 14. Do not ne neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. A prophet in the New Testament would reveal the will of God. For Timothy, the prophecies spoken were clear revelations of the ministry that he had for him. Uh, through these prophecies, he also was given a spiritual gift. And Paul encouraged Timothy that his work at Ephesus was directly in the will of God. He was, doing, he was in the direct center of God's will for him. And the elders, by laying, on hands, by laying hands on Timothy, confirmed and commissioned him to the work of the Lord. Paul commands Timothy to do the work. It isn't that he's asking Timothy or seeing if he maybe sort of wants to, to do the work and, and if he's got time, he can go do the work. But he's commanding him. He is giving out orders to Timothy. 
This isn't the last time that we see Paul saying this to Timothy. He says this multiple times. Later on in chapter 5 of Timothy, 1 Timothy, it says, Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe the things without prejudice. Paul uses the same word again. He is charging Timothy. He is basically commanding Timothy. The the word is actually a military command, a military word. And it it is a command to do something. And this command makes sense in light of what Paul is talking about later on when he says to wage the good warfare. Paul is commanding Timothy like a military general to his soldier. Fight the good fight. There's a war going on and you must fight. False teachers are attacking the church. Fight against them. Fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. It was a peaceful quiet Sunday morning over, 30, or over 73 years ago. The morning began just like any other morning. People woke up in it to uh, attend church services. Others got up and went to breakfast for an early breakfast with their friends. And some people, others um, were, were still asleep in their beds. At 7.48 a.m., the silence of the morning was broken with the sound of 353 Japanese fighter planes bombers, and torpedo planes. The Imperial Japanese Navy successfully conducted a surprise attack on the naval base at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The Japanese air raid destroyed 20 American naval vessels, eight huge battleships, and about 200 airplanes. The casualties of the war totaled about 2,000 American soldiers and about 1,000 were wounded. The attack caught everyone by surprise. Let me read this excerpt to you. Men aboard U.S. ships awoke to the sounds of alarms, bombs exploding, and gunfire, prompting bleary-eyed men to dress as they ran to their stations. The defenders were very unprepared. Ammunition lockers were locked. Aircraft parked wingtip to wingtip in order in, uh, in the open to deter sabotage. Guns unmanned. Gun, guns unmanaged, unmanned. They were only able to get a few operational. Many people received a rude awakening that day, not expecting an attack or a war. The tragic costs of being unprepared were a devastating destruction that destroyed many, um, many airplanes and ships, the naval station, and many lives were lost. How many of you woke up this morning prepared for war? How many of you know that there's a war going on? Believers, we are in the most important war, a war that is greater than the uh, World War I, World War II, or any future war combined. This war has been going on for years. It's been going on for centuries, even millenniums. This war is more important than than any of those wars, and it's a spiritual war, not a physical war. Are you prepared to fight in this war? Are you ready? In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare. We must also do the same. 
since we are in the same war? Are you actively fighting in this war? Or will you get caught by surprise by the enemy? In order to wage the good warfare, we must know who our enemy is. The enemy is Satan. Satan is our enemy, and he is at war with God. And that hasn't always been the case. Now, Satan, when God created the angels, he also created Lucifer. And Lucifer was a beautiful angel, a wise angel, and was very, and was actually blameless. But Lucifer's heart was lifted up, and he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be, he wanted to sit on uh, the throne of God. And Lucifer was, because of this, Lucifer was cast out of heaven because of his sin of pride. And when Satan was cast out of heaven, he took with him a third of the angels. And he says, and the, um, after he took the third of the angels, and those angels now are known as what we call demons. But ultimately, the war is between God and Satan. The, the war is between God and his truth and Satan and his lies. We learn about Satan and his lies. He is the father of lies. John 8.44 says, you are, a, you are of the father, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of the fa- your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is, the, he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is a promoter of lies, and he is the source of any lie that you hear. Satan spreads lies about God and, and, and he spreads it through the world. He's very clever and crafty with his lies, though. And he will use and abuse the word of God and he twists and warps it. And you see that even starting in the Garden of Eden when he deceived Eve by taking the word of God and inserting, and inserting a subtle lie. And he caused them to question and to doubt the word of God. And this is exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to to guard against twisting and perversion of the word of God, perversion of doctrine and of um, the gospel. So how does Satan attack the church? How does he attack the church? There's a couple of ways he does that. One of the ways is that he hinders the gospel. He hinders the gospel. You want to look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse um, 3 and 4. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, which is Satan, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul says directly before this that uh, when they preached the gospel, they plainly preached the truth. They clearly presented the gospel to them. They didn't use any clever arguments. They didn't use any um, clever tactics or any deceitfulness when they preached the gospel. They clearly presented the gospel to them. And Paul is saying that even though they were, um, the gospel was presented to them, their eyes have been veiled. And it is because of the God of this age, Satan has veiled them. He has put a blinder on their eyes and they can't see the truth. They're spiritually blinded to the gospel. And Satan attacks, Satan blinds the minds of those who are perishing, unbelievers, so they do not believe the gospel. And that's the sad reality of the war we're fighting in. Satan attacks unbelievers so they don't come to Christ. 
And you may have seen this yourself as you were witnessing to other people. Uh, you may have come across someone who has been interested in the gospel, interested in spiritual things, and, and all of a sudden they don't want to hear anything more. They, they, um, they don't respond anymore. They're not interested. And uh, Jesus talks about that in the, uh, the parables. Uh, one of the parables, the parable of, this, um, parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, the sower goes out and spreads seed, which is the gospel, um, on different soil. There's four different types. And one of them we want to look at is, is, that, is the seed that falls on the wayside. It falls on the wayside, and, um, and then the birds of the air come and snatch it up. And Jesus explains what that means uh, later on. He says, when anyone hears the word of God, word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Satan is at work here and attacks by taking away what was planted in their heart. Another example is seed that was um, sown on, th- on thorns. And Jesus says about that, he says, he, receives, he, received, he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. There's another type where the word of God has been clearly presented to somebody, and then the cares of this world, whether it be a job, whether it be a relationship, whether it be um, getting a house or any other type of thing, the cares of this world and the pursuit of riches can choke out the word and that they lose interest in the gospel. They lose interest in spiritual things. That's another attack that Satan has on the gospel. He, blind, he basically is blinding their eyes to the gospel because they're so interested in pursuing other things. Another tactic that Satan uses to attack us, to attack the church, is um, attacking believers. And he attacks believers uh, in a number of ways, but uh, you look at the example with um, Peter. And Peter says to, um, Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22, 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Satan wanted to attack Jesus' disciples and to have their faith shaken. He wanted to um, have them lose lose faith. And he hoped that they would give up and deny the faith. In 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. As a soldier in this battle, we must be aware we must be alert and on our toes at all times to stand against Satan. Another way is that he uses is to destroy our usefulness. By sin, destroying our usefulness and, our, and effectiveness in the gospel. Um, he can also instill doubts in us. Believers are also physically attacked. If you look at the example of, of Job, who Satan asked of asked God of Job and took away everything that he had. He can attack, physically attack other believers. Even uh, Paul was sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him, a thorn in the flesh for him. Again, Satan also attacks family. The third way he can attack the, um, the church. Anything that God is for, Satan is against. Each day we see more and more attacks on marriage. 
that we see divorce rates climbing and the acceptance of that divorce is a normal part of life and that you can just give up in a marriage and acceptance of this and then you just give up in a marriage and find somebody else. Even the institution of marriage is being attacked where Satan spreads lies that homosexuality is okay. Not only that, but he pushes that the same-sex partners should also be considered married together. The Supreme Court is even um, going to decide and make a ruling whether uh, either for or against same-sex marriage across the nation. This is, a, this is a lie that Satan is promoting. God instituted marriage. Man does not have the freedom to redefine something that God has created. God designed marriage to be between a man and a husband and his wife for life. Lastly, we look at 2 Corinthians, and it's the very thing that Paul is urging Timothy to fight against. This is a plea that we be on guard from false teaching. Look at, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 13, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, 3, but I fear lest someone as a serpent, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's fear is that false teachers will come in and deceive those who believe the gospel. This is a spiritual attack on the gospel. They have twisted and warped the word of God in preaching another gospel. Colts will preach this in, the name of, in the name of Jesus, but they'll deny his deity. And then they aren't serving and worshiping the true God then. It's another Jesus. It's another gospel. And this why it's, it's a, that's why it's essential to know the word of God and so that we can detect lies because we know that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light and his ministers will do the same. False apostles, false teachers. Timothy's mission at Ephesus is to protect the gospel from attacks. He is also directly attend, um, defending attacks towards the members of the church. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 20. Therefore take heed to yourself and to all of the flock, among whom which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among you yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that, the three years, that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The church is constantly under attack and must be protected from those who will destroy them. So how do we fight against these attacks? How do we fight back from these attacks? Let's look at the next verse in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.19. It says that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. It is important to fight the warfare with faith and a good conscience. We must know, that what, we must know what we believe and hold on to it. Faith is believing the truth of the word of God. A good conscience means that we, our lives and our motives are pure. If we live... For living a life of godliness and purity and holiness, we will have a good conscience before God and man. We must also obey the word of God. It isn't enough just to have a quiet time to study God's word and walk away, but 
It's important that we know his word, but it's also important that we apply our, the word of God to our lives. The word of God has to change us. It has to mold us to be more and more like Christ. We want to imitate Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10.3, it says, for, we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We don't fight this war using physical weapons, nor do we fight using clever military strategies. Our weapons in this war are mighty in God. The world, who is in the control of Satan, has countless arguments to attack the gospel. These lofty arguments are used as an excuse to not believe the gospel and to attack the truth of God. And it's, and it's a way for them to exclude God from their thinking. But the weapons that we use are mighty in God, and, and they're able to bring down these fortified walls, these arguments that people put up against God. Obedience to the word of God and holding firm to the faith and devotion to prayer are essential weapons in the fighting the war. We must, we must bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul tells us that there have been some who have rejected these things. Faith and a, faith and a good conscience. These men have thrown away their weapons of war. It's like throwing away your sword and your shield. Without a shield, you won't be able to defend yourself, and without a sword, you won't be able to fight. And the tragic result of rejecting faith in a good conscience is shipwreck. It says, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. To, ship, to shipwreck the faith has been likened to throwing away the rudder on a ship. Without the rudder, you have no way of steering, and without any way of steering, you're subject to the wind and the waves, and eventually you're going to crash. Paul gives us an example of those two, two men who have shipwrecked the faith. Using by name, he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And we don't know a whole lot about these men, but we know that the name uh, Hymenaeus comes up again in 2 Timothy 2.16 and 8 through 18. It says this about him, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. These men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are detrimental to the church at Ephesus. They've rejected the faith in a good conscience. They have given up on the faith and they have thrown out the rudder of the ship. Additionally, they, they were promoting lives to the members of the congregation the church. Their false teaching were also causing others to stumble. Just like Satan, when he was cast out of heaven, drew with him followers, these men were also drawing other followers from him, to them, away from the truth. And their message, their message spreads like cancer. Imagine one day, after getting out of bed, you wake up, take a shower, and after you uh, get out of the shower, you notice something you not haven't noticed before. You notice a lump, and it concerns you, so you go to the doctor to get it checked out. After getting it diagnosed, 
He tells you that the lump is cancerous. He says you can do one of two things. You can either leave it in there or we can remove it. But it's up to you. What are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to remove it. You're going to get it out of there. You want to take it out. You want to get it out of your body so it doesn't spread any farther. Because cancer will spread and destroy more tissue. It will continue. And you want to get it early before it's too late. Similarly, this is why Paul states that he's delivering Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. He's saying that they are cancerous to the body of Christ. Their teaching is spreading to other believers. It is essential that they are removed. They, you want to get them completely gone. Because if they aren't, they aren't removed, then they're going to destroy more and more people. They're going to bring down more and more people. They're like the savage wolves that Paul talked about that would rise up among them and say perverse things. Remember that Timothy is fighting a war. He's fighting for the church. He's fighting against people like Hymenaeus and Alexander. And these men were turned over to Satan. This probably means that they, were, they would be um, turned over to, uh, to suffer physical illness or disease or even something such as as severe as death. These men were true believers. The ultimate goal is that they be restored, that they repent of their sin, repent of their error of their teaching, and return and be restored back into fellowship with the church. But it is, it is more likely that these men were part of the church for a period who professed but never truly believed. And it seems evident based on what they are teaching and the effect they're having in the church that these men were never saved. And Paul is delivering these men to Satan so they may learn not to blaspheme. And Paul is doing that by doing this, he is, by saying this, he is instructing Timothy to follow in his father's footsteps and deliver false teachers to Satan. Drastic measures must be put into place in order to preserve the holiness and the unity and the health of the church. Looking at this brief passage, we, look at, we, look, we learn what is at stake in the church. We learn about the tremendous duty that Paul, has, that Paul has given Timothy, that Timothy has as a soldier of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we're, the war is fierce. The enemy is constantly attacking. We must fight for the health of the local church, for the purity and holiness in our own lives, and for the preservation of the gospel. We can't sit on the sidelines and watch the war happen. We, have, we haven't been relieved of duty. We need to be fighting as a good soldier of the truth. Immediately after this, following this chapter, in chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, I exhort you to pray. In conclusion of everything that I've told you in this first chapter, pray. Pray for all men. I just want to read this, uh, this, this hymn that we're going to sing after, the, after we close. It says, it's a hymn called, I, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And Jake, if you have the lyrics, you can put it up on the, on the screen for them to read too. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his name or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? 
Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace, to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the, the example that you give us in Scripture. Lord, we pray that we would be like Timothy, like Paul, who fought nobly in the war, that we would recognize our enemies and that we wouldn't be asleep. We wouldn't be caught by surprise, but that we would fight the good fight, that we would be strong in the faith and our lives would be pure, imitating holiness, imitating Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be an example to others. Lord, that we would fight and defend for the gospel. Lord, fight for the truth. Pray that we would, we would uh, not give up and not sit on the, way, on the sidelines, but that we would fight strongly for you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.